You will learn a lot about motivation from this talk, um, both in the conscious level and the non-conscious level. This is my research area. And later, I would like to demonstrate how motivational mechanisms are demonstrated. I mean, I will, I will, we will look at the Hamas charter and then we see how ideology activates this motivation. And by that, I hope, to, I hope you to understand why susceptibility to terrorism is so high. Okay, so first let's start and like talk a little bit about terrorists. What do we know about terrorists? So uh, basically, well, I mean, uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's really maybe, it's like, it's, it's common sense to think the terrorists may have like mental problems or psychopathology or specific personality trait. But basically, uh, winter studies demonstrate that um, terrorists are not characterized by specific path psychopathology or by specific personality traits, uh, which is kind of interesting uh, for us. And, um, and I agree with uh, Neil that not a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of methodological problems in doing research on terrorism. However, there are data, there is data about it, and, and, and definitely there is no, there is no specific profile to, uh, about, about uh, suicide terrorism. So um, social, social psychologists try to see maybe, uh, maybe there is situational factors such as poverty or um, you know, um, education, things like that. And again, nothing, uh, we, uh, they didn't find any, any specific profile uh, that can uh, define terrorists from non-terrorists. Um, so basically, it's a mistake to think that all terrorists are, are definitely different from non-terrorists. And there are many paths into terrorism and out of terrorism. So if terrorists are not characterized by specific personality or psychopathology, the question is that maybe, maybe they have specific motives. Maybe, uh, maybe, I mean, because we know in social psychology that people basically embrace ideology out of motivational reasons. Uh, and these studies, I mean, there's a lot of data, so therefore it was very reasonable to think that maybe to embrace uh, terrorist ideology, one needs to have a specific motive. And, and so, um, but interestingly, um, social psychology researchers found multiple motives underlie terrorism. And so, um, and so if, we, if we have, I mean, there are specific um, um, examples here, but, but in general, if we have so many motives underlie terrorism, then again, we're stuck. Okay, because we can't, I mean, if it's so diverse, then maybe this is not the reason. Um, so I will just demonstrate a little bit. Nasma Hassan, she suggested the Hamas terrorist's main motivation is like entering to paradise, being in the presence uh, of Allah, meeting the Prophet Muhammad, and uh, reaping the rewards of participating in the holy war. Pape emphasized resisting uh, to foreign occupation as a major motive. Uh, Bloom emphasized ten different motives, yeah. But it's um, and then and then I didn't, you know, uh, I could bring much more data, but I just thought, I mean, it's kind of it's not a waste of time, but it's kind of like um, it's a problem, okay? Because if we have so many motives, then maybe this is not the right way to look at uh, causes for terrorism. So, what is important to study out of what we know on terrorism? Because uh, we we found multiple motives. Several authors have hinted. And a classification typically based on some kind of interaction or combination between ideology and, um, and pers personal reasons or motives. The behavior of terrorists is governed by and explained by the same general processes and motivations 
as human in general, okay? Therefore, we need to study in order to understand terrorism, we need to understand motivation in general, general processes. I will be very much focused in this, on this concept. Another thing that is really important, that is more important to understand why terrorist activity seems acceptable than it is to speculate about what is wrong with terrorists. Okay? So susceptibility to terrorism is basically even more important than terrorism itself because we see that this is a rapidly increasing phenomenon. So I talked about the combination between motivation and ideology. So what is ideology? Ideology is a set of consensually shared beliefs and doctrines that provide a moral and intellectual basis for a political, economic, or social system. And we know that, I mean, this is, basically this is a very conscious uh, definition for ideology, but basically we know that people adapt ideology same as they adapt habit. Uh, I mean, sometimes we're not really aware of what we do. Um, and so ideology are typically expressed and reproduced in different forms of communication, including non-verbal semiotic messages such as pictures and, and movies, respectively among many forms of reproduction and interaction, written forms of communication, constitution, scriptural ideology, legal documents, books, newspapers, play a prominent role in persuasive communication and subsequently in behavior. So, we talked about ideology. What is Islamism among different types of ideology? Islamism is basically a set of ideologies holding that Islam is not only a religion, but also a political system that modern Muslims must return to the roots of their religion and unite politically. And so, one study done among uh, Palestinian and Lebanese uh, citizens demonstrated that the important uh, but the important factor for support in suicide attack, attack was attachment to Islamism, indicating that the greater the commitment to the ideology of Islamism, the more likely supporters are endorsed suicide activities. So, um, if ideology is so important, then how is it related to susceptibility to terrorism? Because, you know, you know if we have so many ideologies, how come this specific ideology is so susceptible? And so what we're going to do now, we're going to talk about motivation. And I think it's really important for you to understand the principles because later I would like to, to show you how it is demonstrated in the Hamas Charter. So what is motivation as a dynamic construct? Social psychology used the term motivation to describe why a person in a given situation select one response over another or make a given response with a great energization or frequency. Please uh, pay attention that this is a very situational, uh, situational definition for motivation as opposed to traditional approach that highlighted fixed motives um, uh, like achievement, affiliation, this is all things that we know from traditional psychology. Contemporary approach highlights general processes, motivational system, motivation as cognition. What is motivation as cognition? Okay, cognition is basically, um, cognition, our, our cognitive system is always active. Even if we go to sleep, we keep thinking of things and <clears throat> And so many of our thoughts have motivational characteristic, meaning that these type of thoughts are characterized by end state, end state uh, situation and the means uh, suggested to reduce the discrepancy between current state and desired state. And central to the, this approach is the concept of goal, defined as a cognitive representation of desired end state that impact evaluation, emotion, and motivation. So, um, uh, there are two modes of
of processing goal pursuit. One mode is conscious and the other mode is non-conscious. And when we talk of conscious way of processing information or uh, goal pursuit, we basically refer to all the models that we know from decision-making processes, meaning that we basically, we have some kind of intention, and then like Bandura is a very classical psychologist, I cited him from John Barr's paper, I cited him from 2006, but basically, you know, we all psychologists, we, he's a very, very traditional psychologist, and, uh, and basically we say that, uh, we, we first form intention, then we anticipate, uh, we, we plan scripts or plans, then we self-regulate our behavior, and in the end, we just, you know, we just check, uh, evaluate our functioning. So this is one more pursuit, and why is it relevant? Because later, I will try to demonstrate how this conscious goal pursuit is demonstrated in the Hamas Charter. If you remember my talk, my, the, the definition of my talk is coaching. So in coaching, what we do, we basically, we set goals, we have like goal setting, and then we have goal striving process, and so it's very clear. We, we make a decision, and then we move toward action. Okay, the other, the other mode of uh, processing of goal pursuit of, um, is like, it's non-conscious, and basically, this is an alternative path uh, for a conscious goal pursuit, indicating that goals often become accessible and promote congruent behavior without conscious consideration. So I would just want you to look at these types of symbols. Okay, these types of symbols, we basically we see them on everyday basis. They are emphasizing ideology, but basically we see them on everyday and everywhere. So what is happening is that um, once we are exposed to a symbol, this symbol basically activates a cognitive representation of a goal. And this representation basically promotes a congruent action without conscious consideration. And how is it demonstrated? How, I mean, what kind of studies do we do in social psychology? The, the common procedure is called, is called priming. We basically expose participants to a subliminal, uh, to, uh, to a, some kind of stimuli in a, I mean, like it could be 30 milliseconds, it could be a, you know, more like, and this is like the type of exposure is very subtle, but basically, uh, individuals' um, action is uh, immediately affected by the stimuli without them knowing it. How is it related to the Hamas charter? For example, I, I'm not talking yet about the Hamas, but I will just give you some kind of like um, a study that was done. For example, participants that were exposed to words related with violence, later their behavior become, became more hostile without them knowing the source of their motivation. Okay, so basically the major uh, idea of this talk is that ideology is a is, is type of contextual cue that, is activate, that activates our motivation and subsequently lead to a, a, to a congruent action with consciousness or without consciousness. Okay, so now we are in, I mean, now we attend basically the, the major goal, I mean, we're just, we, 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 we are in the goal and the, the goal is to demonstrate how all these ideas are in the Hamas Charter. So, um, fortunately, Charles already talked a little bit about the Hamas Charter, which will save me a time, and, and basically this is the, um, the, the, the official ideology of the Hamas, issued in 1988, and the charter basically is based like a, like a manual. I mean, with therapists, we have sometimes manuals, 
and also when we do coaching, of course, we have manuals. So here is kind of manual for everyday life, including ideology, um, uh, how, to, how to behave in different situations, education, attitude towards Israel. It's not very difficult to know what to do once you have a, 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 such a detailed manual. Okay, so let's take a look how conscious goal uh, how conscious goals are demonstrated in the Hamas Charter. When we analyze goals, first we need to talk about the content of goals. So the content of goals in um, social psychology, basically they, they, they suggest that, uh, that the power of terrorist ideology is identifying uh, the discrepancy between an ideal state and offering a means of removing the discrepancy through action. So in the narrative, uh, we have the enemy, we have uh, the discrepancy, and then we have suggestion what to do. It's very much like Tori Higgins' self-discrepancy theory to those who are familiar with research and motivation. So let's take a look how it is demonstrated in the Hamas Charter. So here we see the enemy, okay? The enemy is a vicious uh, enemy, as it's written here. The, 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 the Zionist plan is limitless. And then we see the, the discrepancy. Liberation of Palestine is then an individual duty for every Muslim, whenever he may be. And then what about the means? No solution for the Palestinian question, except through jihad. Initiative, proposal, and international co uh, conferences are all a waste of time. Another, uh, another um, um, character, uh, another feature that characterizes the content of goal uh, is collective goals as opposed to individual goals. Usually, studies on motivation show that people really like to uh, attain goals that they themselves set for themselves. However, sometimes people they pursue goals that were set by others. Uh, this happens only when the goals are perceived as legitimate. So the Hamas, I mean the Hamas Charter, basically uh, set collective goals, and the type of legitimacy is the name of God. Okay, and how do they do it? One way to do it is to cite uh, parts of the Quran, as as uh, my colleague Nair said before. Uh, oh Muslim, oh Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. Okay, this is one way. Another way is just to you know to emphasize uh, the connection between religiosity and ideology. It's saying all in the same basket. And um, a study done lately, I'm sorry I don't remember the person who did it, also a study on priming, uh, showed that individuals that were exposed to words related with relig religiosity, they, uh, they, they, they later were more conformed and more susceptible than, than, yeah, as opposed to individuals that were not uh, exposed to these type of words. And so uh, here I just, uh, because lack of time, I will just, you know, just take a look at the red uh, words. Uh, every Muslim, every Muslim, every Muslim, when, when a concept is high, the accessibility of the concept is very high and then it activates our representation. And so if we say something one time, it's not the same as to say it ten times, okay? And when we read, we read the ideology and we see the same concept like ten times, of course it does something even if we're not really aware of, uh, you know, of this impact. And so we see another thing here, duty, duty, duty activates basically the commitment. All right, now we are in the very interesting part, which is like the structure, of course. Uh, social psychologists, they don't only look, they don't only look on the content. What is really important, also for clinician, we look at the structure of things. We try to make evaluation by, you know, understanding how the, per how the person talks, what is like the structure of his sentences. 
exactly same, I mean, in the same way, social psychologists, they try to characterize the goal system. And basically, this is an illustration for Alan Kuglansky goal system theory, suggesting that basically we all have a goal system, and then we have, you can see that we have a higher order goal. Studies show that individuals really pursue higher order goals. And then we have sub-goals and we have means, and when the system is very flexible, people are, can, can really replace one means with another one, the means is blocked. However, what happens when this is the type of, of uh, goal that we have? When we don't have a hierarchy, we only have one goal and we only have one means. What does it mean? It means that the connection between the goal and the means is much higher than if we have a goal system which is characterized by several means. Uh, this is called strength of association. Strength of association is much higher when we have only one means because we are dependent in this means. However, when we have several means, each, the connection between uh, the, uh, each means and the goal is diluted. How all this is related to the Hamas charter? Let's take a look. Allah is the target, the Prophet is the model, the Quran is the constitution, Jihad is the path, and death of the sake of Allah is the loftiest of its wishes. Not, a, not even one question. Everything is so obvious. Yeah, we know what to do. Uh, we, we, we can die, and then if we don't have any other means, and in a collectivistic society, people just, you know, they just pursue the goal, and, and, and there's a high, and, and, and all this, all this thing is like is related to motivation. People are really determined to attain their goal, and the goals are set from the outside. So these are not bad people, but this whole system is just is like constructed in a way that doesn't allow people a lot of choice. Um, and then I want I want you to, to take a look also in this. Um, I will I will I want you to show, I want you to take a look on this again. When we have, well, once we have three different means, uh, well, basically we can just choose what kind of means we want to use. But what happens when all these three means are characterized as one big means, or if like different goals are characterized as one goal? It means that we don't have any kind of choice, okay? Because and then how do how does it look in the Hamas? In the Hamas star chart, basically, it looks as if they read Ali Kuglansky goal system because they, all, they, they, they say we have three circles the Palestinian circle, the Arab circle, and the Islamic system, uh, circle. Each of these circles has its role in the struggle against Zionism, and each of these duties, uh, and, and so forth. You can just read, but what is interesting is that all three circles are in the same basket. So one can't choose, I mean, if we try to resolve the Palestinian problem, we must relate to the Muslim problem and to the Arab problem. It means that we, can't, we don't have much uh, flexibility here. Uh, okay, one more thing that is really interesting to look at before I'm going to the non-conscious goals is that uh, studies, I mean, on suicidality demonstrate that people high in depression or suicidality, they have a very rigid um, um, social problem-solving strategies. Um, and then what is interesting is that we know the terrorists, they are not depressed, they are, but they are suicidal. So what, a, a, a hypothesis that, may, that of course needs to be, I know, studies empirically is that, that the same structure of God, the same rigidity, it's like it's, it activates or it, 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 it causes suicidality without having any psychopathology. Then um, this is very interesting. Okay, this is a priming for what we're going to talk about now which is unconscious goals. Okay, as I said before, goals are often become accessible and promote congruent behavior without conscious consideration. And what is really unique in the non-conscious goal system is that the connection
connection between the, the representation and action is very, very immediate, as opposed to models of conscious goal pursuit. You know, when we, for example, if we, we try to stop smoking, okay, so we set the goal, we have the intention, but then it takes a long time until we really stop smoking because we have a model of change process, it takes a lot, long time. However, if this goal is activated subconsciously, the connection to action is immediate. And that's why it's so dangerous. Because if symbols are activated all the time, individual's behavior is affected all the time by these symbols. Okay, so one, one um, and thank you Charles and, and Nair for talking about the protocols of Zion, because I don't need to talk about it again. But uh, one symbol that is really emphasized in the Hamas charter is uh, the protocols of elders of Zion. And this is some kind of historical priming, it's a historical metaphor, motive. It activates the hate for Jews uh, from generation to generation. And you don't need to say, to say the whole story. I mean, you only need to, you know, to, uh, to just to, to say the concept, and everybody exactly know that the, uh, the goal of the Jews is to, you know, to occupy Wall Street or to dominate the world and, and so forth. Okay, so I will just not elaborate because it was um, it was said before. Just take a look at the uh, at the example. The Zionist plan is limitless. Their plan is embodied in the protocols of elders of Zion. What is really interesting is that I mean this metaphor was used also in Europe, but in Europe they never said that it's reality. In the Islam, I'm sorry, not Islam, Islamism. And this note is related to Basan Tibi. He always used to tell me that Islam is not like Islamism. It's two different things. And he's right. And so in Islamism, uh, basically, um, uh, they, they perceive the uh, they perceive this metaphor as, as reality. And this is dangerous because they don't have basically... Oh yeah, okay, I'm, I'm moving on. Another... another um, <laughs> see, I'm motivated, moving on. Uh, another uh, another metaphor or just a, a, a structure is power position, and so we have different ways uh, uh, to emphasize the power of the Jews in the Hamas structure. They were behind the World War One. They were, and basically, they they there is no war going anywhere without having their finger in it. So when we prime power, if the Jews, you know, they perceive this powerful, uh, of course, it affects the, the behavior of people that read about the Jews. The Jews are dangerous. And, and, but this is not the only way that they uh, prime or they use the concept of power. Another way to, uh, to, you know, to, to look at power is financial power. And then this is again from the Hamas, with their money, with their money. What happens to someone who is exposed to this concept so many times? Another, uh, another concept is dehumanization. Dehumanization is traditionally have been uh, understood as an extreme form of prejudice that enables violence and, and cruelty. Uh, so, uh, I think Nuit is going to talk more about types of prejudice, but um, uh, what is interesting to look at in the Hamas charter is different types of dehumanization. One way is just to call uh, the Jews uh, the enemy. I mean, it's not people, it's the enemy. Another way is just to say, to compare the Jews to Nazis. Okay, of course, the Nazis were human, yeah? But today when we talk about the Nazis, we say that these are they're not really human. Okay, so the, the comparison between Nazism to Jews is very uh, frequent in the Hamas charter. And also, uh, just to say, I mean, subhuman condi uh, condition, of course, it activates the same thing. Okay, so another, uh, so basically, the power of the Hamas, I mean, the, the ideology, in the ideology, it's also out of the ideology. And just uh, an example, uh, this is I, I found it in, a, in an Iranian website comparing Joseph Fritzel, I mean, associating, not comparing, associating Joseph Fritzel to the Jews. And basically, he, he 
was not a Jew. But by creating this type of association, if people really believe that this is reality, okay, oh yeah, the Jews, Joseph Fritz, of course he was a Jew, he's an animal, all Jews are animals. So this is the type, I mean, this is the type of psychological processes that are dangerous and happens all the time. Uh, this is Muhammad al-Dura, uh, uh, a Palestinian child uh, that uh, previously uh, the, the Israeli troops were, um, they were, uh, basically they say that the Israeli troops, they shot Muhammad al-Dura, but now this case is in the French court suggesting that basically uh, it's, it was, it's not true. Uh, but that basically this doesn't really uh, matter because once it, it does matter, but uh, the power of non-conscious goal is so is so high, is so powerful that even though uh, it will be proven that Jews didn't do that or Israeli troops didn't do that, this is still in the internet all the time. This activates the theme of anti-Semitism all the time. Okay, what can we do about it? Uh, can we do anything about it at all? Uh, I'm sorry to say to tell you that when I looked for intervention in the literature, all I found is like. When they, when they will become democratic, maybe we can do anything about it. Because uh, I, I'm, uh, psychology, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous area, uh, and I will never stop doing it. But uh, what we have now is more interventions in the individual level or in the group level. And I think we need to, uh, to look at interventions that are more related to the uh, globalization or to the internet or media, and to further develop these strategies because people, I mean, sometimes they don't go to therapy most of the times, and, uh, and they are affected by different uh, social phenomena that we, we need to control, we need to try to affect before uh, they will become democratic, if at all. Uh, so, one way is just to do counter antisemitism um, uh, media. Another way is, it was just suggested by Professor Stephen Hopeful, is to set competing goals. I mean, set competing goals meaning that uh, to see, okay, this is maybe our, I mean, perceived as, as our enemy, but basically the enemy perceives us as enemy as well. And so, once we, 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 we set uh, reconciliation goals, maybe it's not going to affect us in the long, in the short time, but in the long run, we have children, we have adolescents, maybe they will uh, be affected by, uh, by by different information. I'm sure that some of uh, some people that live in the, uh, you know, in Israel and Gaza, and I think, I, I, I'm sure that they would love to, to be, um, to, you know, to, to live better life and, and to live in peace. Uh, so, but this is, um, this is a goal for the long run because we know that in monolithic societies it's very hard to, to make an effect and, uh, but it doesn't mean that we are psychologists and social scientists, we need to give it up. Um, and basically, I would, I would like you to take the take-home message is basically the two things that I, and these are the, the major two mechanisms for motivation, one is the conscious and the other is non-conscious. Thank you. Thank you very much. If I can call the speakers up, we have about 15 or 20 minutes for our discussion.
um, the, uh, the last paper, the, you know, when we studied the Hamas uh, charter, um, I, I don't know, um, I mean, I, I don't know if, if the Hamas charter itself um, is a, uh, a predictor of um, suicidal activity or something, because no doubt it's an offensive document. And obviously, the things that you describe are not. And I think that the real challenge that we have is to understand what leads a person to get up in the morning and to put on the belt. Uh, the ideological dimension was explored in, in, in the movie Paradise Now, which is a very problematic movie. I mean, wrong, I don't think it's, it's quite bad, but still there's an element here that's sort of very ideological. Um, and, and finally, the, the, the third paper that I was very interested in, uh, in reading all these um, Responses. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm really uh, intrigued by um, the uh, the debate over uh, anti-Semitism in academia, and um, particularly and, and the, the ten categories of response and so forth. Um, I really want to uh, concur with you. There's real resistance to conversation. Bob Mesher, uh, you did have some comments and some questions, but uh, about your gender, gender directly to the um, uh, women are about twice as likely to develop PTSD as are men. Um, but what's also interesting and having to do with violence, the uh, um, men are more likely to be cued into anger uh, along with their PTSD than are women. Women are more likely to become withdrawn, men more likely to uh, have uh, anger activated. Um, and, and, and that and anger then is more closely related to direct retaliation. So I don't know where your interest lies there in terms of this, but but uh, that's the short answer. Yes, to the Hamas Charter. Um, yeah, basically, uh, we don't have a um, lot of information on specific, the specific connection between uh, suicide terrorism and personality or motivation. And, and so that's why uh, social psychologists decided to look at general processes and understand. So, and this is very sad because we in psychopathology, we used to look at like suicidality as the most, uh, it's like, it's, uh, I don't know if the most, but one of the major problems. And, 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 and then in, in the society, in that society, uh, it's like it's, uh, it's, it happens on an everyday basis. And so what I, I, I try to, to look at is like how susceptibility to ideology can lead to extremity and suicidality as a type of extremity. Of course, I mean, it's not completed and maybe, and I, and I hope we, we find a better uh, explanation. For the first speaker, I would like to uh, ask if, uh, in this type of anti-Semitism, I can see this component of uh, this historical component. And uh, from this point of view, I would like to ask you if there is uh, relevant in your study uh, this history of anti-Semitism, because I wouldn't be, I wouldn't equalize with any other threat. You are saying that uh, also the Muslim can can feel threat, but I think that uh, what what if the Jews can feel this threat of uh, the Muslim population, they will also uh, 
they will also make uh, appeal a sense of historicity because we have the history of programs, we have the history of Holocaust. So this threat of anti-Semitism would be a bit different by uh, a threat of another kind of uh, hate or hate crime or uh, hate speech. Or is it really relevant? In is your question, uh, um, can you compare because anti-Semitism has such a greater history? Yes, so, yes. Well, so you know, uh, it, then this is the point, because let's even say, um, let's concede the point, uh, which I don't concede, that anti-Semitism is, is the worst of hatreds, and we, have, and we Jews have the most terrible histories. Uh, uh, it, it misses the point of uh, when you move towards solutions, you have to... One of the first, well, not one, the first rule of negotiation is I have to understand my enemy's pain and their goals, and I have to set mine aside. Otherwise, you cannot negotiate. So even if you accept uh, that anti-Semitism is the worst of all hatreds with the strongest histories, most pervasive, most constant, most targeted, most horrible, uh, uh, in order to move to solution, you have to then instantly forget that and move to understand who you're going to negotiate with and what their need uh, uh, is. Uh, and that's, uh, and uh, I'll give you a more poignant example of that. In the reconciliation in South Africa, a mother had to uh, accept that all she could do was listen to uh, the, the admission of guilt of the man who had killed her four children, slaughtered them, even before her eyes, in order in order to reach re reconciliation, um, was the wrong he did to her a, a thousand times worse than the punishment he received? Absolutely, but that doesn't move you towards the solution. So there's two different questions there, and in moving towards the solution, you have to forget your own pain. At the same time, that that's your own motivation. So you understand me? That's my answer to. Can I take the prerogative to sort of push you or press you on this issue? In, I was, for example, active in the anti-apartheid movement, and in the South African context, there, there was a paradigm of negotiation. Different groups had as a goal to create some sort of society that was inclusive of all the different groups in various forms. So each group had different views of what the future ought to be, but it took place in a context of reconciliation. How do you find, so, so I can imagine, and I think to an extent there have been solutions in the South African context through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and uh, whether we agree or disagree with uh, the, the ethics and morals of, the, of this very sort of um, specific view of reconciliation, how do you negotiate with people who are consistently saying their goal and their motivation is to annihilate another group? Because from the social sciences, you know, we, we study the works of Emmanuel Levinas, for example, and the works of multiculturalism. If you don't recognize the other, and as Levinas says, you truly become human when you see your face in the face of the other. If you don't recognize the other, how is it possible to have a negotiated settlement? Well, again, the, the complexity of, complexities of, of, of reality. Um, you, you have to do uh, multiple things at multiple times. Um, Israel now has a, uh, a policy to uh, assassinate Iranian 
nuclear scientists. If they walk into Europe, if they, uh, um, uh, uh, even in Iran, they try to make them unsafe because that's one thing you have to do immediately. And on the other hand, they are in favor of uh, um, o Obama trying to negotiate on that. Uh, those, uh, in, in the liberal conservative debate, those are opposites, and you can't reconcile those two elements. In terms of actual policy of action, uh, you probably have to do both actions and, um, and, and consider uh, uh, all possible solutions at the time in terms of the, the, the real politics. If uh, recent polls, uh, some 75, 78 percent of Palestinians and Israelis are in favor of the uh, uh, creation of a Palestinian state, and um, uh, um, and acceptance of, of peace terms. Uh, do Israelis? Uh, do most of those Israelis believe that that will end the hostilities? No. The vast majority of those same Israelis believe that just as in Gaza there will be continued uh, hostilities. But you still take the action. So when I'm saying that's the answer, it is, it, it's, it's, uh, it's true what you say, and at the same time you have to move forward as if it's not true uh, at the same time in the real politics of, of the answer. Yeah, I, I, one concept that seems uh, central to all three of the papers seems to me the issue of uh, narcissistic rage and questions of powerlessness and humiliation. And it's a tricky concept because on one hand it provides the fuel for the intensity of some of the suicidal terrorism, but it's a slippery slope because then it gets used to justify some of the political rationalizations or excuses for anti-Semitism. Well, you know, the Jews have made us powerless. Uh, they haven't treated us right. They haven't recognized our, our specialness. They, they've um, humiliated us. But without getting into what the justifications are for, for, uh, for the situation, it seems to me it's really kind of core to, to understanding terrorism because the terrorism actually cuts across um, religious ideology. I mean, we, we talk mostly about Hamas and uh, the Islamicists at the moment, but Fatah and the Ba'ath Party are pretty secular in terms of their orientation. So I think it isn't simply it isn't simply about Islamism. It's also this this concept of narcissism is narcissistic rage and envy is pretty important and uh, powerlessness. Can I start with that? I think you're, you're right that narcissistic rage is part of the explanation. I think that, the, um, that it's, it's fairly clear that a lot of what is going on is anger because people's identity has been threatened and because a lot of people tie up their identity with their group identity and they see the group being under attack. But on the other hand, uh, it doesn't follow from that, that that the rage is going to be directed towards the source of the problem. Right, right. And that the problem could very well be that the, um, the Arab world has experienced a series of failures that are of their own making, but that there is a sanctioned target, and that sanctioned target is the Jews or is Israel. And so one of the, so the, the fundamental question then for me seems to be not, um, I mean, I, I would start as a given that there's a lot of rage, but the question is, what are the processes that lead that rage to be, be channeled against the Jews, and how can it be rechanneled? channeled elsewhere. Now, I think that what happens very, very often 
is that people infer from the rage that the source is Israel's misdeeds. Right. And I think that that is a, um, an unfair attribution rather than a, um, an explanation. Well, I was trying to be cautious yeah. not to imply that. Yeah. Uh, my question is to Dr. Hopfor. Uh, how do you uh, explain uh, the behavior and actions of people like Galloway and Livingston to the loss of resources? What loss are they afraid of that makes them what they are? So those are the, Ken Livingston was the former mayor of London. Right. George Galloway is a radical MP who was kicked out of the Labour Party in the UK and is now uh, the founder of a respect party which sort of combines, I'd say, sort of greater socialism with radical Islam. So it's sort of a populism. So they're both British uh, political actors. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know enough about those two particularly, but, but uh, nationalism is, uh, is a classic example of this threat of the immigrant uh, uh, and they're going to come and they're going to make impure your, your, your pure land. So, um, you know, it's a, uh, one of the interesting things, American Jews uh, vilify France, uh, but the, the uh, um, France, uh, the French government and, uh, was very quick to move, for example, against uh, the British boycott of, of, of Jewish academicians. Uh, uh, um, and uh, and French scholars. The French, thank God for the French secret police, because most of the arrests of terrorists in the world are through the French secret uh, police. Um, but the issue of nationalism, I, I think it goes something like this. I, I fear uh, uh, the, the Muslims among us, and uh, if the uh, uh, Muslims, they're also causing this problem because of Jews, and I hated Jews anyway because it's part of my xenophobia in general, so I'll add uh, 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 Jewish hatred in there also. Um, typically, in, and, and here you have, for example, uh, uh, for individuals, I would never try, uh, unless I, um, uh, with some psychiatrists here also, I would never speak about an individual unless I could interview them, but about a movement, uh, uh, what I would say is why do, do the Swiss uh, elect a right-wing nationalist, uh, um, uh, very right-wing uh, uh, nationalist politicians. Well, it's because of, of the belief of being overtaken and the loss of their whole society and their way of life through through uh, uh, the immigration process that occurred in Switzerland and what they see next to them in Germany. I'm, I'm sorry. I use these examples of these two people to describe Europeans who uh, decided that the way for them to uh, save something is to attack Israel and to support the Palestinian terrorists. That's the example that these two represent. It's a very unique example. And th these are European liberals. Uh, my question is, why do they exist? Uh, and what motivates them? What drives them? By the way, they're not just in England. They're in the uh, uh, Netherlands, in, 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 in Spain, uh, in France, all over Europe. Uh, uh, so my question is, what drives them? Yeah, well, uh, I, I did uh, uh, 
uh, when you get a mo when you get a goal set, uh, you try to unify it. And uh, again, if you want to be liberal, there's a certain goal set that falls under liberal that includes uh, 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 um, blaming Israel uh, for the problem. So that's part of it. But but again, I think personally, uh, uh, I, I think you're asking the wrong question because what's really interesting to me is Saudi Arabia right now is uh, uh, creating a policy to try to reverse. You, don't, you think you know what I'm saying, but I don't think you know what I'm about to say. They're creating a policy to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to try to reverse the hatred that they spewed in the world uh, uh, through, through the school system of, of teaching Muslim children. Uh, and they're aware that they may be too late. Now, what's their self-interest? Because they realize that with, uh, with Israel goes, so they. I know um, what you were going to say. Okay. So, so, so they, they are going to try to put now their uh, hundreds of millions and even over a billion dollars into counter-education. Uh, uh, now, uh, uh, the, the horse may already be out of the barn, and they're also aware of that. So, um, well, that's not. Yeah, I would like to comment also to uh, Stephen Fury. Um, and and I, I think that sometimes we can, you know, like we, we, in Hebrew we say like we take the ride and someone else suffer. So it's like um, if you, I mean, I, 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 again, I don't know these two politicians that you mentioned, but, but they use, uh, they use uh, the, the victimization of another another source, and then they basically they benefit from the from this suffer. Maybe we can, and so they maybe they themselves they didn't lose anything, but by using someone as by associating to being associated to someone else suffer, they become part of the game, and then they can gain from someone else suffer. Like we can look at the, the dynamics between Iran and the Palestinians. So basically, I think maybe Iran has the interest that the Palestinian problem will never be resolved because by using this uh, problem, pro problematicity, they gain power in the Arab world. So, um, so, so it's not that they, they specifically lose something, they just use someone manipulatively, use someone else's loss to gain uh, power. I think that the question about um, Galloway and Livingstone is the right question. And I think that um, what the, the, the fundamental question that you're asking is, it seems like there's something very rotten on the left. And it seems like a lot of the people who started out um, on the left with a very clear human rights agenda not too many years ago have, through something going on, ended up in positions where they are supporting precisely the opposite nowadays. And that you're seeing it show up with, um, with Galloway, you're seeing, seeing it show up with Livingstone, but you're also seeing it in a lot of the academic community. You're seeing it with um, people like Judith Butler, who um, is one of the leaders kind of of this leftist anti-Israel campaign. And, 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 it seemed, and I'm not exactly sure I'm at the bottom of this. One reason I think I'm not, that I'm not so sure that I'm at the bottom of just what has gone wrong is because some members of the intellectual left write in a language which is so obscure and hard to penetrate that when they offer their, their justifications, it's a full-time job just to kind of work your way through. But somehow, through a lot of the, um, the intellectual machinations of the, and I'm not talking about the Obama left, but I'm talking about kind of the, the intellectual far left. Through a lot of machinations of that part of the left, 
they managed to turn good into bad, to turn a lot of things on their head. And it seems to me that it's incumbent upon people who speak that language to try to sort it out and figure out if there's still anything good left in the far left. Um, I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing, I think it may, it may be revealing things that are wrong with the far left, which have taken it full circle away from its humanitarian roots. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to stop her over time. We have to take the schedule. There's a lot of more questions. Um, hopefully the questions and the discussions will continue over lunch. We're going to take a one hour break and instead of 1.45 we'll come back here and start at 2 o'clock sharp. Um, and if people want to speak about where to go for lunch, uh, we can perhaps go as a group or you can go out and go. Here I pushed the Okay. Is it really a compressed pod? It'll consist of two speakers, Peter Glick and Ron Aviram. And I just wanted to know on the table here for anybody who's interested. Uh, Ron Aviram put out a flyer about his new book that just came out. Uh, this sheet and the yellow sheet is actually um, an advertisement for a uh, paper com uh, competition. So for anybody doing research on issues of psychoanalytical perspectives, uh, prejudice, psychoanalytical perspectives of, of prejudice. Say that ten times real fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're welcome to pick up a flyer about the competition. Uh, okay, so the first speaker of this session is Peter Glick. Uh, he's speaking on victims of success, how envious anti-Semitism forments genocidal intent and undermines bystanders and moral outrage. Uh, Peter Glick is a professor of psychology at Lawrence University, and he's been there since 1984. Uh, his area of expertise is social, is social psychology. He taught at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and he did his PhD in social psychology at the University of Minnesota, um, and he did a BA and AB in psychology from Oberlin College. He's published wild, widely. Uh, he co-authored a book with We won't get into that here. <laughs> um, so he's published widely and uh, co-authored a book with Susan Fisk from Princeton University, which received the 1995 uh, Gordon W. Alport Prize. Uh, so it's really an honor that you're here, and uh, welcome. Thanks. I want to start and say enough with the Jews already. Um, you know why? Why still? Why still the Jews? How do we understand the more than 2,000-year persistence of anti-Semitic hostility? And not only that, but the persistent belief in this diabolical Jewish conspiracy that controls world events. What other conviction threads its way through the historical heart of Christianity, through Nazi fascism, and of course currently Muslim extremism? or connects the political right with the contemporary left. Anti-Semitism makes the strangest bedfellows. What other ideological point of agreement, other than a powerful conspiracy of Jews, is there between the likes of Martin Luther and, uh, and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, or Himmler and Gore Vidal, or 
Richard Nixon and London's left-wing former mayor, uh, Red Ken Livingston. Now, the anti-Semitic answer to the, the, the persistence of anti-Semitism essentially blames the Jews as the problem. And I have no intent here to blame the victim, I'm one of them, but we need to consider something about, whether it's something about the Jews' unique position in the world and in society consistently, that has fueled continued anti-Semitism, something that maybe past social psychological explanations have insufficiently paid attention to or explained. I'm going to argue that in many ways, Jews are the victims of their own success, and that this has uh, spawned a particularly virulent, persistent, uh, and nasty form of prejudice. Essentially, I'm going to argue that uh, anti-Semitism is what Susan Fisk and I have called an envious prejudice toward a group perceived as a powerful, manipulative competitor, and that this helps to explain uh, anti-Semitism's propensity to turn genocidal, its uh, persistence across millennia, once you combine this with an interdisciplinary view, uh, why it's dominated by conspiracy theories, which is one part of what really fascinates me, and it's spread currently across the globe, uh, and also some very unlikely places like China, and also from the right to the left. And uh, finally, uh, why this might fail to provoke the same moral outrage that other forms of prejudice often do. Now, envious prejudice presumes a group's incompetence. And I ask you a little question here. I guess I'm pointing the wrong way. Okay. All right. I'm close enough. I can just hit this. All right. <laughs> but let me ask you this question. Who thinks that the Jews are extraordinarily clever? My punchline? Anti-Semites and Jews. Right? And here's a nice little thing from uh, The Secret of Jewish uh, uh, Genius from JewishMag.com, obviously an in-group magazine. Okay? Um, and it points out all the amazing number of Jews, and even that Elvis may have been Yiddish. All right? I would love to do a Yiddish Elvish. Yiddish Elvish? All right, never mind. <laughs> that would be funny. Uh, but of course, we know that anti-Semites have long had these notions that the Jews are extraordinarily smart and clever. All right? Uh, both recent kind of anti-Semitic comments. Um, uh, you know, this is a Catholic bishop who had gotten excommunicated. Um, and, of course, uh, in Mein Kampf, Hitler constantly rails about the Jews' uh, cleverness and wildness. Okay, so, so why is this? Um, why would anti-Semites exaggerate Jewish competence, right? Jewish cleverness. Now, the Freudian view of this is that anti-Semites are, are really projecting their own uh, kind of uh, uh, repressed desires, so their own instincts, their own base instincts, their desire to have power, their desire to regress, and they're using Jews as a projective screen. I'm going to um, suggest an alternative view, all right, that it's not just this projection that, you know, my desire to control the world becomes a Jew's desire to control the world, but rather that uh, there is a stereotyping and attribution process that we can understand in a different way, uh, that combines suspicions, uh, well, observations of Jewish success with suspicions about motives and then generates conspiracy theories. Now, to understand how this works, it's really uh, first important to understand that all prejudices are not alike. And that's what uh, my colleague Susan Fisk, who's at Princeton, Amy Cuddy, who's at Harvard Business School, and I have uh, done in our stereotype content model, which has challenged some long-standing uh, kinds of views of prejudice that have been predominant in social psychology. Uh, the predominant view is that prejudice is a univalent antipathy. That is, it's just a hatred going from mild to extreme, 
Um, and uh, we've argued instead that a lot of prejudices are inherently ambivalent. And in particular, we contend uh, in the stereotype content model, there are two fundamental dimensions on which groups are stereotyped. And they really answer two questions about groups. So one dimension is about competence, and the other about warmth. And here you can see some of the traits by what we generally mean by this. Right? Um, why these two fundamental dimensions? Because they answer two questions. The warmth uh, question is the answer to, is this a friend or a foe? Do they have warm or cold intent? And the competence question is, what are their capabilities? What could they do to me? Uh, especially uh, very important if they're a foe. Okay. Uh, and we can claim that these are, and we've shown this empirically, I'm not going to give you a lot of data, but we've shown this empirically repeatedly, that these dimensions of stereotype content are predictable from uh, structural positions in society. In particular, the socioeconomic status predicts perceived competence. Groups that are high in socioeconomic status are seen as competent. Um, and groups that are disadvantaged are stereotyped as not competent. Interdependence, whether it's cooperative or competitive, right? we have similar interests or competing interests, or at least perceived as having competing interests, uh, leads to uh, stereotypes of warmth. So groups that are seen as having common causes with us are, are perceived as warm, and groups that are seen as competitors in society, uh, as minority groups often are, are seen as cold. Now what this does is this yields a two-by-two two classification or taxonomy of prejudices. So we've got the predictor status, high or low, uh, or socioeconomic success, uh, and interdependence, cooperative or competitive. And so this encompasses the standard view of prejudice that really contrasts the two, one, two of the diagonals. That is, uh, dominant in-groups right, are usually seen as competent and warm. Uh, they're, they're high in status and they're viewed uh, as really being the mainstream of society, so they're cooperative with the mainstream of society, and this leads to admiration. And this is, in, uh, traditionally in social psychology, contrasted with uh, the view of outgroups, and it's assumed in the past that all outgroups fit this one cell that I'm showing you now, which is the low status or disadvantaged outgroups who are viewed as competitive, maybe not their, they're not successful competitors perhaps, right? but they're parasitical on society, they're a drain on our resources, and so they are viewed as uh, incompetent and cold and really treated with contempt. Now this group can be attacked. We, uh, I saw there's a New York Times front page article on gypsies being attacked, the Roma being attacked in Europe. So I'm not saying this group doesn't get victimized, but a particular interest to me, and I think to this conference, uh, is one of the ambivalent cells. So first, the one that's not uh, of direct uh, interest, uh, but one of the ambivalent cells, is for low status disadvantaged groups uh, that are viewed as cooperative with the rest of society. Traditionally, women are viewed this way. They're warm, but they're not competent. All right? The disabled, um, the handicapped. Only the Nazis could turn the disabled right, into a threat. They put them in the other cell. But, but not very successfully. It wasn't very popular. All right? So they usually elicit sympathy and paternalism, the soft bigotry of low expectations, but with an affectionate kind of tenor. All right, so it's the other cell. What about model minorities, groups that are high in status and successful, socioeconomically successful? Um, and yet, uh, so because they're successful, they're seen as competent, as the Jews are. Uh, but also, if they're seen as being in competition with the rest of society, then they're stereotyped as being cold. Cold, manipulative, but competent. A very dangerous combination. This is what leads to envious prejudice. Now, Kierkegaard defined envy as unhappy admiration, and I think that really sums it up. 
there is an admiration of the Jews among anti-Semites, but it's a threat at the same time. Now, even if envied, when times are okay, uh, my, uh, successful minorities might be tolerated for their perceived skills, right? Uh, if you're, you might want to get a good Jewish lawyer if you think that they're extraordinarily clever, right? Um, but they're going to be suspected of maliciousness when times are bad. And so they're especially likely, I argue, to be scapegoated when there's a crisis, when there's widespread societal um, misfortunes. Now, I want to differentiate this from classic scapegoating theory. The classic scapegoat model is basically a frustration-aggression model, uh, and it suggests that frustrations, whether due to individual sources, like I'm too short, right, um, or something else happening personally to me, I have a bad marriage, um, or shared frustrations, either one will do, that any frustration creates an inclination to aggress. Uh, and that this aggression gets uh, vented toward the weak and the vulnerable, much as uh, a child might uh, beat up on the family pet when frustrated by the powerful parent uh, who punished her. Right? She can't aggress against the powerful parent, she has to aggress against any weak and vulnerable uh, thing that cannot attack back. Right? Uh, and by this view, uh, scapegoat ideologies are largely epiphenomenal. They're, well, they're rationalizations. They're projections and rationalizations. Uh, of this sort of infantile urge to aggress. Um, now, I've argued instead, based on, uh, in this stereotype content model and expanding on that, uh, that uh, you can see scapegoating in a different way. And I've called this the ideological model of scapegoating. Um, and Irvin Staub has uh, amply demonstrated that it's really collective frustrations that precede genocides and uh, mass murders. All right? So it's really shared frustrations among the group. Well, why is that? Because uh, when you have shared frustrations, everybody together is trying to figure out why. And so what I argue is that this is an attribution process, or what social psychologists call an attribution process. All right? They're trying to figure out why. And of course, then there's a marketplace of ideologies that people might choose from to, to understand why this is happening to them. And this is a rational motive. It's an adaptive rational motive but it can lead to uh, very extreme, uh, untrue, uh, and crazy kinds of answers, right, nevertheless. Uh, and what partly you're looking at if you're trying to decide who could have done this to us, right? Uh, because these, you know, now often there's some personal sorts of forces that might have done this to us, but that's not very satisfactory because it doesn't, uh, it's very hard to understand. So people may be overwhelmed, they want to blame it on somebody, but who could have done this to us? Well, it has to be uh, a group that is competent. If it's some sort of crisis, like an economic crisis, who could have caused the stock market to crash in order to profit from short selling, right? It has to be somebody very clever and competent and well positioned to do that, but also somebody cold and manipulative. Enter the Jews. Now, this can be exacerbated. So, um, so the cultural bias of having these stereotypes well embedded can lead to these suspicions, and it's really going to be toward these competent and cold groups, again, who are positioned as successful competitors in society. That's where these stereotypes come from. I don't have that box. They ran out of room. All right? But this can be exacerbated by realistic conflict, and so this can be a continuum between realistic conflict to, you know, innocent, totally innocent uh, group being scapegoated. But any past history of conflict with that group uh, like you had in Rwanda with the Hutu and the Tutsi, is going to merely add to this tendency, or like you have today in the Middle East. 
All right. And in addition, I would certainly acknowledge that various psychological needs come in. Uh, for instance, it's much more psychologically palatable to blame some other group for my misfortunes or my sh our shared misfortunes than to blame ourselves. Right. So there's a whole host of those needs that might come in. All right. Um, and then this is what results. So the scapegoat ideology now is seen as having a more causal role. And I think this goes to Charles' opening remarks, right? The scapegoat ide ideologies need to be taken quite seriously because they believe in them, okay? And those are what organize and motivate aggression uh, and, you know, fuel the resentment that is being felt, all right? Uh, and genocides are, are top-down. Um, they uh, are not spontaneous mobs, mob outbursts. Uh, and obviously the Holocaust is the, the height of this, of a totally bureaucratized, organized mass killing. Even Rwanda, which you might think was a counterexample, uh, it turns out, that, you know, because it was mobbed with machetes, but these were highly coordinated killings uh, through radio broadcasts. So it was low tech, but it was highly organized. Now, in addition to this, you know, some individuals go overboard who believe in these ideologies, but the bulk of the violence is highly organized. Okay, so this has some, some implications to suggest that there's a mix potentially here of rational and irrational processes, right? And where you draw the line could be difficult in any given case. I mean, again, the Holocaust is an example where there's a completely uh, non-rational answer, but there's some adaptive motives here to try to figure out what's going wrong, why is it going wrong, um, and that, that makes sense, but then cultural biases can come in to uh, offer explanations that are culturally plausible and will gain a lot of uh, traction, uh, but uh, you know, and, and it might be completely wrong. And again, any conflict that's existing already is only going to, um, going to exacerbate this. So this model suggests that some groups are much more likely to be scapegoated for these crises, all right? And it's going to be these groups that are positioned as socioeconomically successful competitors. So middleman minorities, right, model minorities, or what Amy Chua, who's at Yale in the law school, has referred to as market-dominant minorities, are, I think, most at risk. So the irony here is that the more successful these groups are in society, the more potential, when things go bad, that they will be victimized. And of course, it's long been noted that Germany was a relatively better place for the Jews before uh, the Nazi regime than a lot of other European countries. Jews were relatively successful there as a group. Um, and of course, the Nazis bitterly resented that very success and cited it as evidence of the Jews stabbing them in the back and their perfidy and their ability to do that. And that stab in the back, I mean, I could, I could apply this to other uh, genocides, and I have. So Armenians in Turkey were very similar to the Jews' social position uh, in, in Germany. Um, and you can look at uh, Cambodia, the victimizing of intellectuals and professional class. All right, uh, there's a number of these you could look at, but I think it's really uh, instructive to look at Nazi and uh, compare that to the Rwanda genocide, uh, because the propaganda there is more well documented. We know there's a lot of documentation uh, for the Holocaust, and in both cases you have this stab in the back kind of theory, this powerful minority, and the Tutsi were a powerful elite minority uh, in Rwanda. Uh, and so you have this view that they stabbed us in the back, and they are the ones who are powerful enough to do this, and close enough to do this. Uh, and you get this imagery very, very similar uh, between these two genocides, really eerily similar, all right? Uh, so there's the visual propaganda, or consider this, the verbal propaganda. Where's this from? Who's this talking about? 
They're blood and power thirsty. Their only goal is ethnic superiority. They're dishonest in business. Protocols of the elders of Zion? No. This is what's called the Tutsi Ten Commandments that was published in a hate newspaper in the 1990s in Rwanda. Okay, so the, 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 the imagery of the Tutsi, uh, the characterization of the Tutsi, they were called cockroaches, just like the Jews were likened to rats uh, by the Nazis. These are both kind of clever, uh, difficult to kill. In fact, Tutsi rebels uh, embraced the cockroach uh, um, as, a, you know, as a kind of imagery for themselves. Okay, kind of interesting. All right, well, what I want to um, illustrate the general utility of my model by suggesting it applies to other groups, we still have this particular problem that's uh, of particular relevance at this conference, and that is why the persistent targeting of the Jews. And I think by focusing on the consequences of uh, a structural position in society, the Jews' structural position in society, the stereotype content model provides a framework for uh, an interdisciplinary approach to this question that by looking through the lens of uh, my perspective here, of the stereotype content model, um, we can understand why this has been so persistent, because the Jews, despite historical changes and particularities, have persistently been in this quadrant, or enough of them have been in this quadrant of the model of successful competitors to continually re-energize this kind of um, uh, conspiratory, uh, uh, conspiratorial view of Jews. So the saying that the, the more things change, the more they stay the same, seems to be particularly true with attitudes toward the Jews. And of course, going back to early Christianity, I think it's interesting to note that uh, anti-Semitism in Christianity began very early on when Judaism was the established higher status religion, and Christianity was a breakaway sect from Judaism as the parent religion. And Christianity had a major problem, not only the death of the Messiah, which isn't really supposed to happen, right? Um, at least wasn't predicted, um, but also the rejection by most Jews of God's chosen people of their own Messiah. Now, what could you know? This is a really potentially fatal threat to this breakaway sect that most Jews reject uh, Jesus's divinity. What possible solution could there be? Well, the solution was that the uh, Jews must be children of the devil and that they rejected their, their evil, because they rejected their own Messiah, uh, and they even manipulated the powerful Roman authorities into killing him. All right, the first Jewish conspiracy theory. One, one of the first Jewish conspiracy theories. Now, from a structural perspective, this was added to medieval Europe when Jews occupied this economic niche, or some Jews did, of moneylenders, right? And this uh, originated in Christian prohibitions against usury, but it became a secular complement to the stereotype of Jews, because of course money lenders are someone that's going to be resented. They they make money and they profit off of your misery. They are you know cold manipulators. Um, that's uh, something that 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 positioning of Jews in society uh, reinforced. And of course uh, this in turn led to some Jews being very successful in finance and banking. The Rothschilds uh, most famously, right? Uh, and the Nazis uh, very much resented. Jewish prominence uh, in Germany in particular, but thought that Jews controlled an international financial conspiracy, right? Um, and uh, in The Eternal Jew, I don't know if you've ever seen this Nazi propaganda film, I do recommend viewing it, um, they complain again and again and again that there's too many Jewish doctors. You know, what minority groups do you complain? There are too many of them are doctors. <laughs> How does this become a bad thing? Because it's Jewish prominence in, in high-status professions, in the media, in government, in finance, in industry, again, this is the, the group that was positioned to stab us in the back, 
by the Nazi worldview. Now, in the last 60 years, of course, the establishment of Israel and Israel's own success and military might is another sort of re-energizing of this kind of stereotype, right? Um, so, uh, you know, the, the Israeli conflict with the Palestinians, as I said, realistic conflict is going to only harden these kinds of attitudes uh, toward the targeted group, all right? Uh, so that doesn't help the situation at, at all in terms of uh, propelling anti-Semitism. Uh, in addition to that, uh, to say that the Jews' relation, that the Israel's relationship with the U.S. Uh, is a source of uh, problems as far as fueling anti-Semitism is a gross understatement. In a, a, you know, now we have uh, the Israeli state uh, allied, the close close ally of the uh, world's hyperpower, right? Uh, which is not universally viewed as benevolent uh, around the world either. All right, and so uh, whether again it's viewed as sort of the handmaiden, the Israelis that. Israel is the handmaiden to the U.S. or the tail that wags the dog, which is what the conspiracy theories presume, right? This is another source of problems when, with respect to anti-Semitism. Finally, the success of Jews in, in the U.S., right, is another thing that fuels this uh, overcoming oppression and displacement. Jews have, uh, as a group, are a relatively uh, successful minority group in the U.S. Uh, and uh, so this too then uh, allows for more fuel to these conspiracy theories um, and one of them is that uh, the recent economic crisis uh, Jewish bankers uh, at Lehman Brothers uh, sent 400 billion dollars right before the firm's collapse. There's 148,000 hits on the internet on this uh, I got a couple days ago. All right, So they sent 400 billion dollars to Israel. So it's a, this combination of Jewish financiers and uh, Israel. Right? Now, I think that um, I did some uh, internet searches because I was interested in this uh, kind of conspiracy theory. And there's a recent Wall Street art Journal article where uh, it cites uh, Robert Wright, the former Secretary of Labor for Clinton, uh, as worrying that the current economic crisis is going to fuel prejudice and uh, rage against all sorts of minorities. Uh, he mentions specifically Jews, homosexuals, and blacks. All right, and I think you know he's implicitly got this old scapegoating model that I'm criticizing. Uh, should we be particularly worried that homosexuals and blacks are going to be victimized as a result of the current crisis? Now, yes, when people are frustrated, they probably are more likely to lash out generally, and there's going to be more prejudice in general. But are homosexuals or blacks going to be blamed for the current economic crisis? Well, you know, again, from my perspective, it's going to be much more likely that the Jews are going to be blamed because of their social position. And when I did a, a search, and I restricted it to, in quotes, Jewish bankers, and you'll see why, so I want to compare them to other groups, uh, I got 13,800 hits for Jewish bankers conspiracy. Now, what if we invoke the major ethnicity of most bankers in the U.S., right, which would be white bankers, all right? Um, they are blamed to some extent, but many fewer hits. I tried white male bankers, I only got them four minutes, <laughs> all right? Now, let's, what about these groups that Robert Wright is so worried about also, uh, about blacks and homosexuals? Well, what about black bankers involved in a conspiracy? Only 129 hits. I got three for homosexual bankers, right? Now, but I went a little further than this, which I think is really interesting. So let's just look at those hits for the black bankers conspiracy theory. Now, the, the axis has changed, or else I reduced by a factor of 10, all right? from the last uh, uh, graph. Uh, but let's look at those black bankers who are conspiratorial and the homosexual bankers. I restricted this search by adding Jewish. What happens? 
93% of the black bankers' conspiracies are Jewish conspiracies. And guess what? The Jewish conspiracy is to use the black bankers to lend to low uh, minorities in uh, neighborhoods where they're going to get foreclosed on so that the Jewish bankers can profit. They are the puppet masters pulling the strings. The black bankers are merely their tool. The homosexual bankers, 203, it was Jewish homosexual bankers. <laughs> okay. Right. All right. So it's just sort of, these are degenerate Jewish bankers. It's the, in, in the view of the uh, prejudiced person. All right. Now, um, so what I'm trying to say here is that um, the Jews are particularly at risk, even without Bernie Madoff out there as poster boy for us. Um, uh, we're really uh, the ones who are seen as positioned and, and have this culturally well-established stereotype that is really spreading across the world that makes it uh, likely that, that the Jews are going to be blamed. Now, my model suggests that it, there's really a difficulty here because the unfortunate fact is that this scapegoating is rooted in certain kernels of truth, Jewish success, right, uh, combined with deeply entrenched suspicions. And uh, it's very hard to draw a sharp dividing line between the anti-Semitic rant and what might be considered, um, you know, legitimate rational criticism, say, of Israel. All right. Um, and I think uh, one illustrative—I don't know how many of you followed this controversy—but one illustrative example of this is the 2006 Harvard Working Paper and later book, *The Israel Lobby* by um, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt. Uh, these are policy experts from no less than the University of Chicago and Harvard, so they've got a lot of credentials. And uh, some of the claims that they made, and I've, I've extracted some of the ones that are most provocative, uh, although I've softened it at least at the end a little bit. <laughs> all right, but not really. All right. Um, you know, is this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory in rant, or is it legitimate scholarship? This spawned a, a, a significant debate, and I'm not trying to weigh in on exactly where to draw this line. I think there is a line to be drawn, and we know it's being crossed when Israel is likened to being exactly like the Nazis uh, in committing a genocide, right? We know, we know at the extremes when it's been crossed, but this is really kind of difficult. In fact, uh, I thought it was interesting, the Washington Post not only trotted out dueling Jews on this, um, but dueling Kohenim, right? So, high status Jews. Um, so we had Elliot A. Cohen first uh, in 2006 saying, yes, it's anti-Semitic, uh, followed a couple weeks later by Richard Cohen, his colleague, saying, no, it's not. If there are any Cohens who want to weigh in, we can take a poll. All right. Okay, so here's the problem then. These conspiracy theories rest on some facts, right, combined with these conspiratorial suspicions. And if indeed these successful Jews, and, and well, in fact, you know, to say that the Jews are successful as a group, to say that there are a lot of prominent Jews in uh, finance, that there are a lot of outside, outsized, uh, compared to their numbers in the population, or in academia, or in the government, is to make a true statement, right? Uh, combine this with these suspicions, and you have a very difficult conspiracy theory to poke holes in, because of course if the Jews were clannish conspirators who were manipulative, surely they wouldn't tell us, right? They wouldn't advertise that fact, would they? In fact, they would try to pretend to be your friend. Okay? So conspirators can be expected to deny uh, their conspiratorial intent and to try to show friendship. In other words, 
there's a, a general suspicion, especially on this warmth dimension, that has to do with other people's intent. Because other people can mask their intent in order to get close enough to stab you in the back, right? Um, and so, and of course, perceivers are aware of this. We are suspicious about this because we know that people tend to hide their immoral behavior, right? Uh, we also feel that it's more costly, because it is more costly, to trust someone who's unscrupulous, right, than to be wary of someone who turns out to be trustworthy, right? It's a worse mistake to trust the unscrupulous person because they can really screw you over. Uh, and in fact, it takes more behaviors to confirm this impression that somebody might be warm than to confirm the impression that they're cold. So Nicole Tausch and her colleagues have done really interesting research, and they find that on average, you, you want, want like six instances of warm behavior before you're saying, oh yeah, maybe that person really is warm, but only a few in instances of cold behavior are enough to ruin your impression, right, and think that they're cold. In other words, you know, committing fraud once outweighs a lot of not committing frauds, okay? Uh, and when you're talking about group stereotypes, one Bernie Madoff, unfortunately, may uh, greatly outweigh, you know, a uh, hundred Elie Wiesel's, right? Well, once established, uh, these conspiracy theories now, especially nowadays, can easily spread with uh, instantaneous communication across the globe. But I think uh, another important fact, when we see this uh, across the globe, here's a Chinese bestseller right now, all right, and what it claims. All right. Um, now, they can easily spread across the globe, but of course that doesn't explain whether they will, because you can put a conspiracy theory out on the internet and nobody can care about it, right? Uh, but I think my approach in the stereotype content model gives an insight into this as well, why stereotypes about Jews and conspiracy theories about Jews gain particular traction and are spreading across the globe. And I think it's the key is that we're not just interconnected, but there is greater and greater interdependence. Right? Uh, in the stereotype content model, we talk about interdependence, whether it's perceived to be cooperative or competitive. We don't bother with when you're not interdependent, because if I'm not interdependent in any way with you, I don't really care okay, what you're like. All right? But if there's interdependency, and we know today that what happens on Wall Street can reverberate around the world, what happens in the Middle East reverberates around the world, all of a sudden, the average Chinese person cares a lot to understand Wall Street because it affects their standard of living. And so they may you know, have an interest in and, and more receptive, uh, be more receptive to things like this conspiracy theory, which has apparently not only gained popularity among Chinese, but uh, among uh, a number of government officials in China, which is scary. Now, not coincidentally, the author, Song Hongbing, has responded to charges that his uh, creed or his uh, screed here is anti-Semitic. And how has he responded to that charge? By noting how smart and clever Chinese think the Jews are. Even he thinks the Jews are maybe the smartest people on earth. With pro-Semitic friends like these, <laughs> what's to worry? Unfortunately, I think a lot. The contemporary position of Jews also explains, I think, why anti-Semitism has spread not only geographically, but seems to warp the political landscape so the two ends of the political spectrum tend to meet. Israel's conflict with the Palestinians, right, and, um, and the U.S.-Israeli uh, alliance has uh, really fueled anti-Semitism of the left. And here's a cartoon, with, uh, this is an old one, it's got Menachem Begin.